Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today we're talking about philosophy as a way of life. And you may say, well, isn't that a no-brainer? Obviously, it's a way of life, at least for some philosophers. But, you know, you, you might be surprised if you look at how it's done a lot these days. And we really have a, a, a special treat and something new that we're trying here on the show. We have um, a friend and colleague, John Sellers, who's over in England, uh, in Great Britain. And obviously, you know, he's not going to be live on the show because we record this at a time that would be kind of late at night for for them over there. So I recorded an interview with John Sellers last week about philosophy as a way of life. And we're going to be playing parts of it here and doing, you know, what, um, you know, so many other radio shows do, right? Splicing in interviews. But for Dan and I, this is uh, something a little bit new. So hopefully it's going to go without any real hiccups. And um, you might say, John Sellers, who's this guy? Um, Well, he wrote a a really nice article uh, about three years back asking the question and answering the question, what is philosophy as a way of life? He's one of the, the big contributors to that movement in the present. So, and he's also got a, you know, beautiful English uh, accent that some of you might get into as well. So I think you'll, you'll enjoy hearing what he has to say. And, and I know, Dan, you, you read the article. Uh, you had some, some thoughts about it as well. Yeah, I just wanted to, like, extend that uh, Sellers is also a um, reader in philosophy at the Royal Holloway University of London, a visiting research fellow at the King's College London, and a member of the Wolfson College in Oxford. You know, he's um, he's also uh, one of the original founders of the Modern Stoicism Project, too. Yes, he's uh, many accolades to his name. And he's also got a, a pretty decent, well, I'd say it's actually quite great, um, book called Just Stoicism, um, which was actually one of my first um, real academic dives into Stoicism besides, you know, your the fluffy um, things that you see on the Internet. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, I've I've read some of his his uh, more heavy hitting books too on on uh, stoicism. I've I've been impressed by him. I didn't know that you you had um, encountered him earlier in, in that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I was actually I uh, used it as a textbook for course on stoicism that I took on rather oh, nice. early in my um, examination of stoicism and and philosophy in a more broad sense. Wow. Well, you know, I'll have to tell him that. That's really interesting. Well, he'll probably hear this on the on the show anyway. Hopefully. Hi, John. <laughs> um, and uh, otherwise, like he he wrote um a an article on uh, philosophy as a way of life. Uh, what in two thousand seventeen? Yeah, seventeen. Yeah. Which you can um, you can get for free on the internet. We'll put a link to that in the journal Parasia, which means. Freedom of speech or or frank talking, you know, uh, telling it how it is. Right. Um, And um, I don't want to go too much into it because he touches on a lot of his main topics in this interview. And so I'd rather let him speak for himself. There was something that you you particularly liked about it, though, right? Yeah. Um, Early on, while he's kind of talking about what it is 
uh, as a, a philosophy as a way of life. Um, he, he said that he was very uh, influenced by, at least in part, um, Nietzsche's, Friedrich Nietzsche's um, Schopenhauer as an educator and the quote, I attach importance to a philosopher only to the extent that he is capable of setting an example. The philosopher must supply this example in his visible life and not merely in his books. That is, it must be presented in the way the philosophers of Greece taught through facial expressions, demeanor, clothing, food, and custom more than through what they said, let alone what they wrote. Why do you find that so particularly compelling? I think it's a, it's a great idea, um, but I'm curious to know what drew you to that, that passage. It really sets up this this nice dichotomy between kind of your academic philosopher and your philosopher as a practitioner of a philosophy as a way of life, and how these two terms get muddled, and how the terms have been, at least in common parlance, uh, shifted from one to the other, from uh, philosophy as a way of life to more that academic, uh, you know, in the, you know, was it gilded halls of the ivory tower. <laughs> Yeah, and that we could put some diamonds on the floor, maybe too, or something. Like that. <laughs> I like that. I like that word practitioner. Um, you know, there's something there's something compelling about that. You know, that um, a, a philosopher is a theorist, but it can't just be theory, right? Right. It is theory mixed and intermingled with you know your your day to day life. You're you're practicing kind of, I don't know, practice what you preach to borrow the term um, to try to comport your life with those uh, ideals that you hold to be, you know, as we'll talk about later, true. Yeah, so this is a good jumping off point to start bringing John Sellers explicitly into the show, and I'm going to play for you one of the clips that we, we have what is philosophy as a way of life? What does that term actually mean? A lot of people throw it around, but you're an expert on this. What, what do you take it to mean? Yeah, that is a, a really good question. And I guess there are a number of different ways you might understand it. So one way to understand it would be the idea that philosophy is some kind of guide to how to live, that philosophy is going to give you some advice or practical tips or if it's a more, um, what's the word, uh, more, it has a kind of more moralistic ethics, then it's going to tell you what you ought to do, right? So that would be one way to think about it, that, that philosophy is going to give you that practical guidance. Um, another way to think about it might be the idea that philosophy quite literally is a way of life. So philosophy is something that isn't merely a matter of words and arguments and debate and discussion, but it's something that's actually expressed in your behavior, right? So the philosopher, um, you know, thinking about ancient philosophy in particular, for instance, the philosopher um, is the virtuous individual who acts virtuously. And so you can see that they've gained that wisdom and that knowledge through their behavior and not through anything they say. So that might be a, a kind of a slightly more extreme way of thinking about philosophy as a way of life. It's simply a matter of actions. Um, and then I think a third, perhaps more modest way of thinking about it might be simply that philosophy could be 
a way of life in the sense that it's the overwhelming activity in your life. So it's not necessary that philosophy guides you into how to be a good moral agent or something like that, but that philosophy becomes that all-encompassing activity that effectively forms a way of life in the way in which um, you know, um, music might form, um, um, occupy someone's life and all of their attention and they live the life of a musician, we might say. And you could imagine saying, living the life of a philosopher. That could right. apply to a lot of academics, right? A lot of academics completely um, absorbed in their subject, right? But not necessarily thinking that philosophy is a way of life. They might be obsessed with logical paradoxes or something. So, so to follow up on that, one way of talking about philosophy in ancient times is it's the art of living. And Aristotle talked about some arts or disciplines being architectonic and that they would, they would rule over others. So you're, this third way, you're suggesting that philosophy would not just be something that you do and that gives you guidance, but it would also inform the other things that you're doing. Is that the, the idea behind it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... I didn't. I didn't have that in mind, to be honest. But but now that you say that, I think that is actually also a really good way of of thinking about it, uh, as something that would would shape all of the activities that you do and inform all of the ways in which you uh, uh, might live. I think that might fall into yeah. That's a, that might be another way in which we could think about it. I mean, I thought it's interesting that you mentioned Aristotle because I kind of had Aristotle in mind for the third of those ways that I mentioned. Mm. Um, so as I've written in a, in a paper that I know you've, you've um, looked at recently, I'm not so convinced that Aristotle thinks that philosophy primarily offers us guidance for how to live. But I do think that Aristotle thought that philosophy ought to be the activity that people should engage in and that could fulfill their life through a life of contemplation. Um, so that might that will, might be another way to think about what's going on here. So you know, actually, like, let me ask you, Dan. You know, I'm a philosophy professor, and it's kind of natural that if I'm inclined to make it a way of life, that I, I would do so. But you're somebody who came to it. You know, um, you, you had some philosophy classes, but you came to it as. Uh, somebody who who doesn't have a, a vested interest, so to speak, right, <laughs> in it from the start. What I mean, what drew you into thinking about philosophy as something that you wanted to make central in your own life? I guess I would have had to push back on you because you know I may not have a a monetary vested interest, in it, but I do have <laughs> a vested interest in uh, having a you know a little bit of uh, equanimity in my life. Uh, okay, you know, yeah. Uh, a, a reason for why I do things. And I think these are, are definitely uh, things to be desired. And if we remove them from um, the, the area that we're only saying, Oh, it's, you should only care about if it makes you money. I think that's going to be uh, a very small amount of things. That well, it, actually... it, it could be a vested interest as well as in like one status or something oh. along <laughs> those lines. Right. Is you know, to, if we're going to use the ivory tower, my ivory tower is higher than your ivory <laughs> tower or something like that. Actually, we should talk too. sellers talked about uh, academic philosophy in the interview. How is philosophy as a way of life something different than what some of our listeners might have encountered, say, in an intro to philosophy class or a textbook or watching course videos or something where, where it's a traditional academic setting? That's a good question. I think 
I think really when people are talking about philosophy as a way of life, they're thinking of some kind of intellectual, rational reflection that is going to inform all of the activities that they do after they step outside of the classroom or the seminar room. It's not merely the intellectual pursuit that you engage in in the classroom. And you could imagine an academic professor completely absorbed in whatever technical problems that they're doing. There's a sense in which they're living a life of philosophy, but that's not really what we've got in mind when we talk about philosophy as a way of life, right? We, we, we want to think that those intellectual pursuits of theirs actually inform the decisions that they make throughout their lives. I mean, as academic philosophers, we both know of various horror stories of famous professors of ethics that have done unspeakable things in their in their in their private lives and and quite rightly well everyone's obviously deeply disturbed at terrible things that people have done but they're all the more disturbed by the fact that these are people that have spent their day thinking about what morally is the right or wrong thing to do but have completely failed to if you like learn any valuable lessons from that uh, and transport them into how they behave you know um, in the rest of their time. So that's kind of a damning thing about academics <laughs> right there isn't it? Um, so Go ahead. I found this to be really interesting in uh, how kind of like he's talking about this compartmentalization. Yeah. If you're a exactly. logician, you go and you, you you go and you work on your logic and then you at the end of the day, you drop it and then you go off and you do whatever it is that you do. And, or in the, the case of these moral philosophers that do morally reprehensible things, is it is a, a, jo a job that you kind of compartmentalize and then you, you drop it and and like how can you you drop this thing that is uh supposedly uh, the, the odds of how one should live yeah central to your life and, and I, the stuff he's referring to is primarily older male um big name philosophers uh sexual harassing and, and in some cases uh, assaulting um graduate students which mm -hmm. and then the school not doing anything about it which is really quite terrible um, and so the compartmentalization can take place, not just, you know, like, here's my academic setting and then here's my, like, everything else setting. It can even happen in the academic framework mm -hmm. where, where people are, are doing things. And you're like, your philosophy would seem to say you should be doing other than that. And, and you're not. Um, I, I'm kind like, of the question is, is, is it their philosophy or is it just something that they, you know, twiddle with and yeah. you know, try to make sure that the uh, has good reasoning? Yeah, something that'll stand up against the scrutiny of their colleagues, but not, you could say, the average person on the street saying, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious, Dan. So um, your, your experience with academic philosophy, um, did you find it, you know, helpful? Or was it only through turning to, you know, like studying stoicism or things like that, that you got, you got something that fit? And, and wasn't compartmentalized. Um, I I really enjoyed my my ethics work and um, at least it, it exposed you to a whole lot of different moral philosophies, and so it allows you to go, okay, like you know, what are there these things that you can actually start to dive into? Um, although none of them of my coursework ever asked me to asked me to actually practice any of these things it was all a very academic pursuit um i i wouldn't say it was 
for not. I, I found it very intellectually stimulating, and it did lead me to something that was much more practice-based. Um, but, I don't know, I, I take it or leave it, I guess, in that yeah. regard. Well, I think that's a pretty normal experience, and I, I can say something quite similar about the teaching in, in my academic courses as an undergraduate. There was very little in the philosophy curriculum that would lead you to believe that you'd actually do something with this stuff. <laughs> I just happened to do that because I, I wasn't, you know, I, I was a first-generation student. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do anything with this stuff. So <laughs> I, I thought you were, you know, you may as well. Now, uh, Sellers had had another thing, and, and we I asked him a little bit of his, his backstory, and um, we'll, we'll tell a little bit well, of a, a story after. Oh, go ahead. Quick, quickly, yeah, I yeah. kind of wish that some of the um, like first year psychology students are often told to go out and do these experiments yeah. to, to kind of shake up how you see the world and how people react to you. I kind of wish that uh, philosophy would grab a little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, there is a field called experimental philosophy, but they're much more oriented towards trying to like set up good experiments rather than doing that purely experiential stuff, you know? Well, so I asked Sellers about his his own getting into this, and here's what he had to say. How did you end up being attracted to and involved in this way of doing and interpreting philosophy, which I take as a very important concern for you? Yeah, that's that that is a good question. And I don't think I've really spoken much about the kind of autobiographical side of things. Um, I suppose when I was when I was a teenager, uh, before going to study philosophy, I was studying uh, politics and I was very interested in politics and I was reading a lot of stuff uh, like that, reading stuff about Marxism and anarchism and those sorts of traditions, as lots of people do at that age. And I think that was in part thinking about how to live one's life, what values to adopt, how to behave what's worth pursuing, what's most important. So those were the sorts of questions that I think were in the back of my mind when I first went to study philosophy. And as a school kid, in the subjects that I was best at were mathematics and physics. And that could have been another path I could have gone down, but it didn't happen. So that interest in politics led me to study philosophy. And with a strong background in mathematics, I thought that logic might be something that I would excel at and it would be a, a natural thing to go down. And, and, it, and initially I thought that that could be very, very interesting. And then I remember a certain moment, again, sort of typical, almost caricature of a, of a first year philosophy student, reading lots of Nietzsche, because you know that's what you do if you're a philosophy student, and going to my logic classes. And just the, the tension between these two very different experiences and this feeling that, that Nietzsche was kind of speaking to me about how I ought to live my life and the logic lessons weren't. And I think that that was a certain moment that started to put me on this path. And of course, one thing that I think I really learned from Nietzsche is I learned ancient philosophy from Nietzsche in a sense. So my undergraduate degree, we, would have stu we studied Plato in particular, but not that many other people. But it was Nietzsche who introduced me to Seneca and Plutarch and Epicurus and Diogenes Laertius and Epictetus. It was reading Nietzsche's works that first dropped all of these ancient names. And of course, in his essay, Schopenhauer's Educator, he famously draws a contrast between the, the stale academic philosophy of, of 19th century Germany and the philosophers of ancient Greece, 
who didn't just talk the talk, but also walk the walk. So that was my kind of path towards thinking about philosophy as a way of life. And then around the time I, I finished, my reading, uh, finished my degree and was thinking about what to do next, I knew I wanted to continue in academic philosophy in some way, but I had no idea what shape that would take. And this was 1995, and it was the year that Pierre Hadot's book, Philosophy as a Way of Life, came out. And I just picked that up by chance in a bookstore, just one of those random moments in life that happens. And this was a book that connected those interests in European philosophy, uh, Nietzsche, various other existentialists, and the study of ancient philosophy. And he kind of joined all the dots of things I was already interested in and gave a kind of a theoretical framework. Um, there's an irony, irony, of course, in calling it a theoretical framework, but you know what I mean, a kind of a methodological framework for all of these things that, that had been coalescing in my mind. Yeah, so, I mean, I think everybody's got a backstory, right? And and this is kind of cool to actually get to air Sellers, which he hasn't talked about uh, that much. But, um, I mean, what's yours, Dan? I, I mean, you, I, you and I have been talking now pretty regularly for a couple of years, so I know quite, quite a bit of it. But every time that, we, that I ans- ask you one of these questions on the show, I usually get some answer that, that reveals something I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess uh, finishing college, um, you know, mostly you know, a major in computer sciences at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, I took, you know, you know, at Wisconsin, they make sure you have a liberal education, so you have depth and breadth. And so um, you have to take a number of humanities courses in order to get your breadth of your education and um, ended up taking a couple at the, the very like last year, I took a, a couple that really started to bring me into, it was, um, oh, uh, one course which was in the English department, but it was deep into uh, philosophy talking about um, how data and identity and the, the modern world um, shape us and how and and memory. Um, so it like starts off with like you know you're you're a tabula rasa and it ends with uh, RoboCop, um, and so you have this uh, whole gamut of of different thoughts and you know you got to throw in your Philip K. Dick in there because he's all about memory and how yeah. memory is actually um, stabilize the replicant. <laughs> yeah, um, and um, and it really brought into this idea of like what's the question of why? Because I uh, my my degree is going to get me a, a how I can, I can build things. Mm-hmm. Hooray. But why, why should I do any of these things? And, um, that uh, was an incredibly compelling, uh, question. And especially at the end of my uh, college career, it was a lot more enticing to think about that than, you know, writing my programs. Um, and, and then also because I was under a, a large amount of stress from that and a couple of other things that were going on in my life at the time, um, I also fell into, um, reading about stoicism at this time and it gave me a framework that really was able to help me deal with that that stressful time and kind of calm my turbulent mind a little follow-up how did you wind up getting steered towards stoicism because that i mean that seems like one of the big heavy hitters for philosophy as a way of life today um i it was (laughs) i was doing an all-nighter working on a program for bioinformatics i believe i was working on um, a program that was sequencing um, oh, I think influenza, uh, okay. uh, using, uh, bits of, of sequence that were like, uh, three to 
uh, six characters of uh, DNA long, or I guess it's RNA because it's a, um, a virus. A virus. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, at 3 a.m., I just needed a, a moment to like get away and push myself, and it was actually um, a. I was just like, I need to like not think about this, and so I was surfing, um, and I stumbled upon a article that was on. Tim Ferriss's website, uh, oh. he had someone on, and I can't remember exactly who, but they just had like maybe a three-page write-up of the basic ideas of stoicism. I'm like, wow, and it was just like this inspiration moment, and that's that's where I was like, oh well, I really need to read more about this, and that's how it started. That's pretty cool. Did, uh, one more follow-up too. I, I know we're going a little bit over the, the time that we wanted with this, but did you find yourself like, was it sort of like a, a snowball process where you, you read a bit and then you're like, Oh, and that refers to this and refers to this. And then, you know, the snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and moving faster and faster. Um, I mean, there's enough stuff out there on stoicism that you could easily go down a bunch of rabbit holes like that. Right. Right. So, like, I, I branched out, and one of the really early things that I actually read before I actually read The Ancients was this book, uh as a Way of Life by Pierre Hadot, oh. that we are just talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I read a little bit of the, the Ancients, but it wasn't a whole lot. Um, uh, and But that, that book is incredibly enlightening, and it, because it does have this breath, because he's... Uh, such a, a great scholar of philosophy that he can kind of like pick it's like okay these things work well well when we think about them in this way and how um, all these different uh, practitioners of philosophy as a way of life um, and the, the, the things that they did actually to do that uh, you know that was kind of a um, a seminar and and like hey here's all these places that you can go and look and, and uh, discover yeah. I'll say this as as somebody who works in in you know ancient philosophy, Ado's erudition is not just admirable; it's enviable. You know, to to the point where you're like, man, I wish I understood these people as good as he does. You know, he's read so much stuff. You know, and uh, you know, I mean, he's you can, your scholar's scholar. Exactly. Yeah, and but he's also he he writes in a way that's very I think very readable too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess at least the translations, at least for the, our English speakers. That's true. I haven't read him in French, and I, I'm somebody who translates from French, so I probably shouldn't admit that. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know if the French is as good as the English translations. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, shifting topic, I, I asked Sellers a question, and he didn't quite answer this one, but he he did give an answer to a question I didn't ask, which I think is is quite interesting and important as well. There's a lot of important recent thinkers. You mentioned Pierre Addo, who I think the phrase philosophy is a way of life is particularly associated with, but we can, as you do in your work, talk about others like Martha Nussbaum or Michel Foucault. I think Alistair McIntyre is coming at this in a similar way, albeit as a dedicated Aristotelian who sometimes gets some of the other figures a bit, uh, you know, idiosyncratically presented, we'll say. So... A lot of these big names, and and you yourself, uh, I would include in that as well, they all have a background or a grounding in the history of philosophy, uh, an appreciation for it. Addo, particularly as a scholar, doing works not necessarily to push the philosophy as a way of life idea, but just for their own sake. Do you think that's an important part of 
doing something, whatever we're going to call it, whether it's philosophy as a way of life, tradition constituted rationality, or philosophy as therapy, do you think it's important that people turn towards history? Or could you do philosophy as a way of life, just sort of making it up on the fly in the present? I think one of the things that comes through quite clearly when looking at the ancient material is the place of role models and examples. And so, as you know, for lots of ancient philosophers, Socrates becomes a kind of emblematic figure or role model. Even if you are not yet a Socrates, you ought to try to live as if you were a Socrates, Epictetus says. And for the Epicureans, Epicurus becomes that emblematic figure. Diogenes the Cynic is an emblematic figure for lots of people. And so I think that's really what can help to bring philosophy as a way of life to home. Uh, for many people the idea that you've got some kind I mean obviously all these figures get mythologized right so um, no one's perfect but the the idea of a kind of a, a, of a of an image of what an ideal life might look like that people are working towards um, I think that's really valuable and I think if you're studying the history of philosophy you can find examples like that not necessarily ancient you might think of, of other figures in the history of philosophy as well I think if you were just trying to do it in a very abstract sort of contemporary ethics kind of way, you'd lose that. And I think that that would mean that it'd be much difficult to kind of bring it alive for people. So I think I think the historical element is quite, quite valuable. So what do you make of that? Um, is, is it really important that we have these role models like the Stoic sage or Epicurus or whoever else it is? What, what, I think he's right. Um, but what do you, what do you, what's your take on that? It's the idea of a, a sage, like this kind of idealized version of, of these things. And he said it, and I, I would like to reiterate the, you know, it's the, the kind of like the, the legend of these people more than the actual people. I, I guess I've, I've met no one which I would consider to be a perfect role model in all cases. I found people that it can be definitely be a role model in certain aspects, um, but they're never without, you know, some small caveat. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and to not, you know, put someone so high on a pedestal that when they eventually you notice their tarnish, that you are devastated by that tarnish. That's probably some really good advice. Um, that that actually could be one of the uh, practices that we talk about down the line. You know, figuring out whether your attachment to role models is a helpful one, a realistic one, or whether it's a what would you say like a pathological one. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that's that's a good lead into another topic that we asked about, which is uh, spiritual exercises. So another element that comes through, particularly in Ando, who calls these spiritual exercises, is philosophical practices. Philosophy involves doing things and not just once, but making them a consistent practice. So how important are these and why are these important for philosophy as a way of life? This is a really interesting question that I've been grappling with for quite a while, and in particular in connection to the modern Stoicism movement uh, that we're both involved in, because in that, lots of people talk about practices. A lot of people that you encounter who say they're really interested in Stoicism, they want to be a Stoic. It's all about, what do I do? What are the practices that I do? 
And initially, when we started thinking about that, I really struggled with that idea. I really struggled to come up with, okay, what would philosophical practice be? Because to my mind, the important part of the whole thing, the, the philosophical part of the whole thing, are the ideas and the arguments. So it might be that you want those ideas and arguments to impact on how, you're, how you live. You want to put them into practice. That's quite different from saying philosophy is simply a set of practices, right? And so, I mean, this is a, a, a comment that's often been made when people talk about Pierre Hadot's work. In places, he seems to say philosophy is simply a set of spiritual exercises, which people understand as it's simply a set of practices. And some people have pushed back against that idea and said, well, surely it's not just that. Surely philosophy is about offering arguments and reasons for whatever positions that you want to hold. I'm a little bit wary of the idea that philosophy is merely a set of practices. And I think you, this is the, a comment that Martha Nussbaum makes in her book, Therapy of Desire. She points it towards Michel Foucault, and I think perhaps slightly unfairly. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a fair criticism of, of Foucault, but I think the point ought to be taken very seriously, which is that if you try to reduce philosophy merely to a set of practices, how does it differ from anything else that you might think of as a set of practices, like a religion or, or some other kind of ancient mystery cult or whatever it might be? You mustn't forget the arguments and the, the, and the rational claims that are being made. That's, that's the philosophy that you want to put into practice. And if we think philosophy is a way of life merely as a set of practices, you know, I'm going to have a cold shower because it's going to make me resilient. It's like, that's not philosophical, right? Um, I mean, you might be a Stoic and you might decide to do that too. But you've, you've got to have those stoic ideas and arguments in, in, in place as well. It's not just about taking cold showers if people think that that's what it involves. In your article that you'd, you'd mentioned uh, titled, What is Philosophy as a Way of Life? Towards the end, you brought that up twice in, in considering different models of philosophy as a way of life, saying that the danger was not just of, of say, losing arguments or the emphasis on, on that, or rational inquiry, but that there could be a danger of losing, and I forget exactly the phrase you had, it was, it was very nicely put, something like the motivation of truth. And is that, how does truth figure into this? Yeah, I think it's fundamental. If we think, if we think we're doing philosophy and we're taking that claim seriously, that the beliefs that you hold as a philosopher are ones that you think are I mean, the ones you think are plausible at the very least, if not true, that you think you've got good reasons to hold, right? That seems to be really important. What we don't want to do is reduce philosophy to merely some kind of therapy or self-help, whereby people say to themselves, I'm going to believe these sorts of things because they're going to make me feel nice, right? That's yeah. not philosophy, right? You're going to have to have some conviction that the beliefs or the values that you're holding are right. And it's because you believe they're right or true, however you want to phrase it, that you think they're important enough actually to, go, to, to let guide your life. I mean, truth is a grandiose term, right? But you, you've got to have some conviction or some belief. That seems fundamental to me. Yeah, so that, that covers quite a bit. Um, hmm. what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? First thing is kind of like this distinction between uh, 
philosophy is life hacks versus practice when we're actually a praxis when we're talking about practice and so practice is putting theory into practice it is a, a practice that has been buttressed with the foundation of theory yeah i i think there are a lot of people out there who think that you can take whether it's you know stoicism or cynicism or epicureanism or pick whatever it is you could you could you know they say just boil it down for me into the things that i have to do and you know i think sellers is right you could be you might become more resilient by taking cold showers but you won't become resilient along the lines that it would it would you know help you to become resilient if that makes sense you know the the theory is there to do more than just be a a nice set of ideas to think about it's there to make the like you were talking about earlier right the why of the practices why the hell am i doing all this stuff (laughs) it's like i'm going to be resilient for resiliency's sake and what does that get you uh you get great you can you can now stay in the shower cold shower great yeah, well, you can mark it off on your, your card, right? You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you've, you've filled in all these different blocks. I mean, that's there's something to that. I mean, one of the questions I, I kind of wish I had asked him is, well, how much of the philosophy do you need to know then or study in order to provide that framework? And, I sh- you know, I, I kind of regret not thinking of that at the time <laughs> because isn't that kind of the, the key question? Although I think it goes hand in hand. You have to know enough theory in order for the practices to have weight. But then doing the practices then build into the theory a lot of times. At least I found from my practice of stoicism and also like meditation of like, okay, these are the ideas that you hear about in the abstract and then you actually experience it. And the experience is a, a very buttressing effect. I think that there there are sometimes cases where only by doing the practice and then having an experience can you really fully understand what the theory is talking about, mm-hmm. you know. So he also talked about this idea of like truth yeah. as a, a motivating force for why you wanted to do these things, or at least why you're going to choose a particular philosophy of life in that you know, you. Um, are not just doing because you think that they will make you feel good or nice, that it's not a, a therapy or just you know self-help, but that you have some conviction that these beliefs that you will hold are correct and that they are important enough to guide your life. Yeah, so what here's a question to ask though. what if what if you've actually got them wrong? What if you get into a philosophy as a way of life? And you you're motivated by it. You know, here's here's an example. And I, I might tick some of our, our listeners off if they're particularly attached to this person. Maybe we were not we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I think that you could say that Ayn Rand's objectivism, which by the way is split into a bunch of different factions. It's not one simple thing, and they, they all think that, that they've the other people have got Ayn Rand wrong. But I think Ayn Rand is actually proposing philosophy as a way of life. It just happens to be one that I don't think most of us would actually want to endorse, and it wouldn't make us better people in many respects to follow it, you know. So maybe there has to be at least some stock taking at a point where you're like, I don't know, is is this, I, I you know, I understand that I've now got a comprehensive system that helps me understand things, but is it actually 
a good system? Is it in, is it in line with, with truth in a, a very broad sense? Right. I guess you're bringing up the, the no true Randian argument here. I don't know that. Tell me what that is. <laughs> oh, it's just the, the no oh, true so, Scotsman. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I think there uh, are true Randians, but I think that being a true Randian in the sense of like being a t- totally devoted follower, uh, you, you know, putting all these ideas into practice would probably make you, in some respects, a less truthful person in terms of practical truth. You know, it would, it would lead mm-hmm. you away from, uh, you know, what, what so many of the other philosophies that we, we talk about would actually say is the good life. Right. Uh, as well as, like, if you've got, like, a ideal of, like, was it well-being? I don't know if the eudaimonia, uh, uh, the, the, the good living well, that sort of idea. Or? No, as as in like the uh, not a, like a personal well-being, but like the the well-being of all like living things oh. as, as a goal. Yeah. I don't think that that the Randian quite turns into that. No, no, it, it would it would in many respects militate against that. Um, right. and make it, make it, not only would it say, don't do that. It would, it would, it would say why you shouldn't do that. But the wise would be in some respect, misleading wise, I, I guess you could say, you know, at least from, from where we sit. So you know, <laughs> maybe we're, maybe we're wrong about that though. You could know? be. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not a, a deep scholar of Ayn Rand and so. I, yeah, I can't I can't claim to be like a scholar. I teach her in classes, which which is a, a kind of a, a strange move. Um, but I, I do it because I want my students to get a really articulate argument for why they should all be selfish and, you know, strip away some of the, you know, types of selfishness that she rightly distinguishes as, as, as wrongheaded and then come out on the other end saying, no, I still don't buy it. <laughs> I think this is it's good to know what you're you're not. Uh, not accepting of right right uh to to throw it out out of hand uh is not a, a academically you know rigorous pursuit that is the typical academic um response though yeah. you know she is persona non grata in most places in academia one of the so this is actually a good lead into the the last question that i put to sellers and we have some thoughts on this topic as well so the last question that i have for you is sort of a landscape one and i'm going to restrict you from saying the modern stoic movement as an answer to it what would you say are the most other interesting movements or schools that we can call philosophy as a way of life in the present that is a difficult question well, I know you have a workout very recently about Epicureanism. Mm. So, and I, I was interested, you know, when I first saw it, what's he doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> so is that one of the contemporary interpretations or schools or movements that you would say is a viable way of life? I mean, I think, I think we can all learn from a wide variety of different philosophical schools, ancient or modern, and we can all take away interesting ideas from them and put them into practice in our own lives. Um, Whether that be ancient Stoics, Epicureans, Aristotelians, whether it be modern um, existentialism or um, a whole range of other other things in between. 
And um, there are all sorts of, of schools where we can take ideas. In terms of current contemporary movements that have lots of weight behind them, obviously the Stoic one stands out for uh, at the moment, I think. And not just because we've got a, a first-hand view of that, but it's not, it's not obvious that there are lots of others out there at the moment. I mean, there is, there is a society of Epicurus out there, and there are some people interested in Epicureanism. And as you say, I have recently written a book on that, and I do think we can learn stuff from the Epicureans just as we could learn stuff from the Stoics or from many other people. I wasn't necessarily writing it with a view that there was already a large community of Epicureans out there that um, uh, it would appeal to. But I'm sure there are, there are a few. But in the article that you mentioned earlier that I wrote, I end by reflecting on Lucretius in particular, because I think he gives a really nice account of the relationship between a commitment to truth on the one hand, the way things really are, um, and the thought that we can gain some um, therapeutic or practical benefit from attending to the way things really are. And I've always been a fan of Lucretius. I, I read Lucretius very early, very early on in my education. And I, I kind of wanted to honor that because I think that there's, uh, there's lots of interesting material there as well. I mean, as for other communities, it's hard, hard for me to say you might have your finger on the pulse more than I do. All right, so that's a challenge to us. Do we have our finger more on the pulse than John <laughs> Sellers does? I, and, and I propose, you know, to, in another conversation, this idea about Randianism to him. And he said, I have to admit, you know, we don't really have any of those over here in England that I've met, and so I can't say. But right. um, there, there's, there's quite a few other... Um, contenders we could say for philosophy as a way of life i think in the present um what, what would you say yeah and and so like being on meetup and uh seeing the groups that are there that's it is a great index yeah yeah it is and and so you see something i've seen the there are randian groups here um and i guess just thinking about it recently is there's a a group that the um retire early um oh, what is it the fire uh financial independence retire early which okay. is kind of this uh, idea of like creating a good life by making sure that you have enough money in the stock market that you can just like live off 30 grand a year uh, for the rest of your life you're, you're saving yourself um, but I guess the others that I, I so, thought of. So oh. are they then saying they're, they're sort of like limiting their expenses in order to do that right that's it's very like much along the lines of what, what Seneca was proposing, right? And in, in some of his letters where he's saying, reduce your expenses, you're a rich man, um, mm -hmm. a rich person. Yeah, yeah, they're all about like, you know, put away like 70% of your income if you get like as much income as you can. Um, and you need to have what, uh, like, I think it's like 11 times your um, yearly um, expenditures in order to never have to work again. Okay. I mean, I guess you can say there is a philosophy there, right? There's like a valuation of work and um, whether we want to be doing that or not. I, I imagine a lot of these people don't just like sit and watch the TV all day after they retire. No, I think the main idea is that um, you should decouple um, work from having to live. And so you now have work because you enjoy it and you want to do it. And having enough money is what has your ability to actually live on a day-to-day -day basis. So this is interesting because here we could make a distinction 
between um, things that you do as means, right, mm -hmm. that are coming from the philosophy and then things that are practices in the philosophy that in some way embody it. So like for, for that, there's a let's, you know, live frugally uh, so that you can live freely and commit yourself to whatever sort of interesting work you want to do in the future. Um, and the living frugally, I guess you could say that is a practice, right? It's something they would continue right. on doing even after they reach that, that certain point. So it wouldn't just be a means, it would be a practice. And I guess that could qualify as a philosophy as a way of life. Yeah. Um, others that come to mind are like humanism or veganism. Yeah, the veganism one is an interesting one. Would you? I mean, so I guess the, the philosophy behind it is that like, fractured community. You know? Oh yeah, I guess I guess like we talked about the fractured Randians. Yeah, they're different. I, I know of some that like at least have a philosophical background in the uh, whatever can feel harm or pain. Uh, they want to reduce that pain. And so that's kind of like, that is the bad, and whatever you can do to reduce the bad is good in that sense, and thus that results in the practice yeah. of not eating any animals. There's a lot of overlaps between veganism and vegetarianism and the effective altruist movement, which came out of utilitarian moral philosophy, and I, I think definitely can be called a philosophy as a way of life. You know, it's particularly associated with Peter Singer, but there's a lot of other people in it as well. Um, Would you expand on that really quick? Yeah, so the idea behind, well, let's, let's talk about utilitarianism. So Jeremy Bentham is the, the official founder of it, but it's an idea that's been around for a long time. And, you know, really simply put, you should maximize positive outcomes and minimize negative outcomes. But what, what makes it utilitarianism is that you somehow tally these up and sort of plan it out and you do it for everybody who's affected and you treat everybody as having the same like stake in it. So, you know, like if you and I and a couple other people are trying to figure out what to put on the pizza, maybe we have to vote, you know, for, and if somebody like wants, you know, something uh, that uh, is controversial, like anchovies, anchovies or yeah or pineapple maybe that doesn't get in there uh, now this is a really silly trivial example but but i mean you can expand it to you know um city planning you know should we have more public transport or should we like you know keep expanding our highways to get as many cars on the on the thing <laughs> should we have bike routes and things like that i mean an, an effective altruist or a utilitarian would probably for, be for as much good public transport and as much healthy modes of transportation as, as we could have. And there's, I mean, it can affect all sorts of things. So animal rights, Singer is a really big proponent of that. I think actually he might have, he, he, he came at that from a utilitarian perspective, but I think he might have talked about animal rights before he talked about any of the other things that he's really well known for. Um, so right. that, I mean, that's that's a movement. Um, I think the the most interesting example of that is the uh, the people who've taken it to heart to go and work on Wall Street and then uh, live on right as little money as you can in New York and give everything else away. Yeah, he talks about that. There's a chapter on it in his recent book, "The Most Good That You Can Do," uh, about people taking these careers where traditionally we look at them and they're like, you're a money grubber, you know? And they're like, yeah, I'm grubbing all the money I can so I can spread it out throughout, you know, the third world and help people. <laughs> yeah, live an incredibly Spartan life to do the most good. 
I really like this idea that you had about you look at Meetup and see what the groups are. Mm-hmm. And I think you can do that with like Reddit and Facebook and you can see where people are, you know, it could be an ancient philosophy or it could be something more recent where they're taking it and they are living it as a way of life. And I think that those meetup groups and um, forums are an important way in which people, you know, they, they bounce ideas off of each other. They, they learn practices, they get advice. Um, I think that's, that's a central part of how philosophy as a way of life today gets gets lived out right so maybe we should talk about practice here yeah so you know philosophy is a way of life um part of what's really distinctive to it is having philosophical practices that are front and center we picked out two that we are going to just lead you through a little bit maybe we'll do a whole show sometime just on philosophical practices um I thought we did that once, but we can always do it again. You're there right. So Actually, many we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's hundreds of them. But why don't, why don't you uh, lead us through through right. one of them? So um, one that's seen in many different uh, philosophies is a nightly review of your actions. And so this is a, a place for you to kind of reminisce and um, think about how you acted in that day and see if your actions actually comport with the ideals that you hold uh do they conform uh to these ideals and if they don't then what are you allows you that moment to reflect and uh, make a plan for how you can do better next time and i've definitely had this and um, found it very useful and at least early on ended up starting to really apologize to some of the people that are close to my life who i felt like i was acting poorly towards Oh, that's interesting. So you only, you really only realized it in a operational way, you could say, by doing right. this nightly review. Right. Yeah. Um, you, know, you take for granted sometimes your family, um, and then really looking at it from a kind of an objective third person view at the end of the day is like, is oh, interesting. I could have done a lot better. Yeah. That's that's a great observation. So another one that that is kind of there's there's some similarity to it you know we talked earlier about these ideals of like the sage or or wise person or perfectly realized stoic or epicurean um and one of the um one of the practices that you do see in contemporary forms of these is considering what the role model would do themselves like you know when you're trying to figure out well how should i behave but also you can submit your actions you can you can imagine that the sage is watching you so whoever it is that you think has really got it together, obviously if you're a Stoic, it's Cato or I don't know, Epictetus or whoever, right? Uh, if you're an Epicurean, it's always got to be Epicurus. Um, but we could substitute anybody who we think is really well put together and imagine ourselves like either our reasoning process and the excuses we're about to make or the bad behavior that we're tempted to justify to ourselves. Imagine that the person we think really has it together is watching us. And then we can think about what would they, what would they say to us? And, and that could be quite helpful. This is something actually that comes straight out of uh, he talks about the importance of cultivating interior dialogue, right? So we we have this um, person, and it could be whoever you want who you think is particularly 
on the right track. Um, I mean, in my case, it could actually be like, you know, some of my relatives who were, were upstanding people. Um, not only would you be ashamed of doing the action, but they could actually say, here's what's wrong with you. And here's why you shouldn't behave this way. Or if you, if you arrive at the point where you're like, yeah, they'd be cool with what I'm doing. Maybe that's a nice positive reinforcement. You could think of like, I don't know, uh, people who you, who you really, whose opinion you really value, they don't see your actions, but what if they did see your actions? That can give you a, a sense of um, accomplishment, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you have any um, book recommendations from this interview that you we've, have? We've talked about a lot of books in uh, this, and so I should mention some of them, and we'll put links to all of these so you can easily find them. Uh, the big heavy hitter front and center, obviously, is Pierre Adot, Philosophy as a Way of Life. We've probably mentioned that, you know, 20 times in this, <laughs> this episode. Uh, another one is Martha Nussbaum, who's down at University of Chicago still. Uh, the Therapy of Desire, that was a really major work in this kind of genre. Then we have uh, Alistair McIntyre, somebody who, by the way, I can say in, in the terms of virtue ethics is the real deal, somebody who uh, not only talks the talk, but walks the walk, still around today at 92 years old. And I, I would say if you have to pick one book for him, it's After Virtue, which was a, a very popular book. Um, there, you know, we mentioned Michel Foucault. You could look out at the uh, History of Sexuality, Volumes 1 and 2. Um, that might be helpful. That's what Nussbaum is targeting. And then we have John Sellers, of course, right? And we're going to put a link to his article, What is Philosophy as a Way of Life? Uh, highly recommended that you read it. It's really great. But he has a new book out on Epicureanism called The Fourfold Remedy, Epicurus and the Art of Happiness. And so that might be a, a useful text for you to go out and get as well. Um, there, he, as we said, you know, he's moving from the Stoic camp into the Epicurean camp. Right. It's uh, always an interesting wall to bounce ideas on. It's like, oh, look, the Stoics and Epicureans, long butted heads about what the, the true good is. But um, it is uh, the end. And so we're going to leave you with the words of John Sellers. Quite apt. There is a good case for the claim that all philosophy worthy of the name acknowledges this aspect of philosophy, that of philosophy as a way of life, which has been there since the beginning. <laughs>